Brothers and sisters, uh, you have your Bibles there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to do a little run through. Ephesians 1 to kind of catch up, and we'll get into Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Good morning to you. Welcome to Community Bible Church. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, it is the case that uh, society is challenged. There's a lot of hurts going on. But we have a glorious God, and he has a glorious text for us this morning to share. It's a favorite text. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 is what will be our focus this morning. And this is the greatest story of salvation that the world has ever known. And so I want those thoughts to kind of sit on you. And, and maybe to run you into that, I want to kind of walk through where we've been going the last many weeks here at Community Bible Church. For those of you just joining us, we are working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in AD 62 from a jail cell in Rome. He wrote to encourage and strengthen the faith of these believers in Christ. And for Paul, it was paramount that these Ephesian believers, that they know the salvation that was given to them by God, so that they would prove with their behavior that they truly were children of God. So this letter is all about knowing and behaving. It's about doctrine and duty. It's about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, the practice of our faith. And so chapters 1 through 3, Paul presents the facts. These are the facts. You're going to base your whole life off of what I teach you in chapters 1 through 3, all that God has done in Christ to save and redeem a people for his own possession. And the reason why is because this is God's will. And you see that over and over. This is the will of God. This is what God wants to do. This is his will. This is his plan. This is his purpose. And his purpose for his glory is to direct salvation at people, us even. How critical then is it to your personhood to know where you came from, to know about your past, to know about your history, to know about your rescue, your salvation. Several among us here are adopted or have adopted others. Are the details of adoption important for identity? Many of you have parents who served our country in the military, the police, the fire departments. You understand servants, service to community, sacrifice. You understand heroes. Does knowledge of a hero affect your character? Does it affect your identity? Does a right understanding of history, of rescue, heroes, sacrifice, do they affect your thoughts and desires, your joy, peace, even your own service and sacrifice? Paul believes they do. You're in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Paul says there in verse 3, we are the blessed of God, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And why? Verse 5 says, having been elected by God in eternity past, that God predestined us to be adopted as sons. Verse 7 then goes on to tell us that we are the redeemed of God. From his enemies, he's redeemed us out of the slave market of sin, lavishing grace on us. This is in his power, and his power is what Paul wants you to know about. Verse 18, we see Paul asking God. He's not asking you. He's asking God to cause you to know the hope of his calling, the hope of the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. God's greatest power was displayed in the resurrection of his son physically from death. We see that in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. So it's not a surprise at all then with this resurrection story, all of chapter 1, that Paul turns the corner in chapter 2 to give us our history and a second picture of resurrection, the resurrection story of us the spiritually dead being made spiritually alive. He wants to tell us our history, and he wants to tell us about God's grace in way of a rescue. God's grace is so powerful, he can grace 
the dead alive. That's what we're going to look at this morning. God can grace the dead alive. Our history and rescue and salvation, our very life is exclusively explained in the grace of God. Do you like that? Does that sound good? It sounds really good to me as I say that, just with the idea that it's all about God's grace. And His grace changes everything. We need to fully appreciate God's grace so that with this life that we live, we can ascribe to Him all the glory. Glory due for a rescue and a salvation of those who are helpless. By way of illustration, what glory was due to baby Jessica when she was rescued in 1987. Do you know the story of baby Jessica? Does that name ring a bell with many of you? 1987, let me tell you the story, pull you back into this. National spotlight and attention was given to Texas in 1987 when 18-month-old Jessica McClure was playing with children in her yard at her aunt's house. She fell into a well. The well was eight inches in diameter smaller than the width of the sheet of paper that you have are taking notes on today. She fell 22 feet underground in that eight-inch well. How desperate and helpless is this situation? 18 months, 22 feet underground in a well. What two words should I say next? But God. Sustained her life. Even with one leg pinned over her forehead for 56 hours, those long hours that it would take for a team of men to gather the tools required to drill a parallel shaft next to the well through solid rock. They would then send paramedic Robert O'Donnell to gently wrestle Jessica out of captivity and pass her up to safety. Do you remember the moment of joy and celebration that came when that baby was lifted into the arms of a rescuer? The whole nation was watching. The guy with the big smile and the big orange hat on his head holding Jessica who was strapped to a backboard wrapped with bandages all around her head. You could see her eyes and her little arm that was injured from falling up against that and being pressed up against the inside of that well. This moment was captured by a photographer who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1988 for spot news photography. That image is something that gets seared onto your mind if you saw that rescue. You treasure that rescue. It's a moment worth celebrating. It's a moment of history worth remembering, which tells about a rescue and a salvation of somebody that was desperate and absolutely helpless, and about others who made sacrifice and gave service for life in the face of a certain death. And I would ask you, what part of this rescue affords Jessica any glory? She was entirely passive, helpless, and bound for death in her cell, eight inches wide, 22 feet underground. How important for Jessica would it be to know the story of her rescue? Should mom and dad share with her all about the details of what led to those events that day and to her rescue? In the same way, Paul desires that we believers know the story of our rescue. It's critical to our identity to see a perspective of salvation that articulates the size and the scope of the rescue and salvation that we have received passively from the active giver, God. We must know the grace of God which transformed our spiritual deadness into spiritual life. And in the text before us today, Paul captures award-winning images of this rescue. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we saw last week that we are dead, following Satan in the course of this world, set for God's wrath. But here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul paints the picture of the height of grace, 
the victory of grace, the triumph of grace. So specifically, in verses 4 through 7, Paul captures three famous images of God's salvation. He delivers three glorious images of God's grace so that we would fully appreciate God's grace and ascribe to Him all the glory due His name for our life and our rescue. What three prized images of God's grace do we see in our text today? You see the image of the person of grace. You see the image of the performance of grace. And you see the image of the parade of grace. This will serve as our outline for this morning. Three prized images of God's grace. The person of grace, the performance of grace, and the parade of grace. Read the text with me now as we focus our attention on our rescue, the height of grace, where Paul captures these three images of grace which demand our attention, our appreciation, our affection, even our adoration. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is grace. This is grace for the godless is what it is. Salvation for the sin-filled. This is a rescue for the wretched. A miracle for the motionless. What you see in the text is unmerited favor for the uninterested enemy. And as such, this salvation image of death to life, it demands that we see the very personal nature of the grace that has been applied Paul anticipates our response to such an incredibly personal salvation. He can feel our questions. Who is the gracer? Who is gracing the dead alive? Tell us more about this grace person. Because Paul was powered by the Holy Spirit in all of his writings and painting the height of grace here in verses 4 through 7, he doesn't fail to deliver a glorious and prized image of the author of our salvation. It's here we come to point number one in your notes where Paul captures prized image number one of grace, the person of grace. Let's look at prized image number one of grace, the person of grace. Let's see who is this gracer, this agent of grace. You must know the person who graced you, who saved you, who rescued you from spiritual death. It wasn't until age five that baby Jessica began to know about her salvation and her rescue. She was at home with her parents watching the television show Rescue 911. Do you remember this show? And the story comes on about a little girl stuck in a well for 56 heart-wrenching hours. And five-year-old Jessica is driven to the point of tears as she watches this story and this drama unfold on the TV. 
And she turns to her stepmom and she asks, who is that poor little girl? Jessica learned at age five that she was the one rescued from that well. She was the one helpless and desperate and lost. And I was desperate to know, when did Jessica get to know her rescuers? What relationships was she able to create with the people who saved her? Did she get to know them personally? This is not the case for the rescue that we have in Ephesians. Paul makes sure to include a very personal identification of the Savior with the story of salvation. You must know God. You must know Him in His nature, in His essence, all about His character and His divine attributes so that you can rightly respond to His grace with appreciation, affection, and adoration. So read with me again verses 4 and 5. And let's focus our attention on the image of grace that is the person of God. Having described us and our deadness, Paul hinges the whole of the gospel on these two words and launches verse 4 saying to us, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, these two words, one commentator says, are the gospel in a nutshell. But God, these two words, they set off one of the most stark contrasts the Bible has to offer. Us dead, but God. He's the creator who is willing and able to initiate a rescue with us, enemies of his. And why rescue? You should ask, why rescue? Well, there are at least five reasons why God should rescue. I'm going to run through those relatively quickly. There's a host of other reasons. Let me just give you five. In rescue, God gets all the glory. That's reason number one. God's chief aim is His glory, more and more of it. That's why He created you. That's the chief aim of your life as well, is to glorify God with the whole of your being. And so He deserves all the glory, and so He's the rescuer, and so He's going to get all the glory. That's, that's purpose number one. Purpose number two in rescue is that He defeats His enemies. Satan has no power at all to stop God from His rescue. Satan is made the one helpless as he sits and watches his longtime friends, all of us, flee from unrighteousness. God defeats his enemies. Third, in rescue, God spotlights his son, who is the ground and foundation upon which any rescue for salvation could ever be accomplished. Fourth, in rescue, God creates relationships built on grace and grace alone. No one gets to choose to be God's friend. Rather, his book of life has already declared from eternity past who God would save and place his favor on top of. And neither Satan, nor the course of this world, nor your own sinfulness can stop God from saving those who he's predetermined, predestined, elected to save. Fifth, in rescue, he displays many glorious aspects of his character. He loves to put his character on display and rescue is a powerful place for God to show us who he is. What aspects of his character are seen in rescue? First, we come to mercy. Paul says his mercy is rich. He has a rich mercy. Mercy is the withholding of punishment. Why is God's mercy rich? Because we have a great punishment that is due to us. 
The protesters who stormed the U.S. Capitol last week will face just punishment for their actions. They'll pay fines and serve jail time, and rightly so. If they were to receive mercy, their fines and jail time would be dropped, vacated, done away with. That's mercy. Don't expect that to happen. And yet, we have lived lives of protest against God, and what do we find? A God who is merciful, compassionate, and gracious. If I allowed you 10 seconds to think of all of your sin that you've committed over your life and all the sin that you've committed this morning and all the sin that you know that you will commit in your life, you could start to picture or fathom how much compassion and mercy God has set on you. God says as much about his character in Exodus 34, 6. Moses had asked him, show me your glory, and God said, I'll grace you with that. And when he graced him with a demonstration of his, of his glory, and he passed by, God called out his own name to Moses so that he would know unquestionably who God is. And God said to him, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. First, Paul tells us of God's rich mercy toward us. Because of sin, we were due wrath, but God withholds that punishment. Second, Paul tells us of God's great love for us. And to show you God's great love for us, I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Yes, John 3.16 says, God loves the world. That is the undisputable declaration of God because of his general love for all of creation. However, you must, in your theology, you must, in your life, understand categories. There is a category for a general love of God and a special love of God. There is a category for a general grace of God and a special grace of God. If you don't use categories, the scriptures will confuse you and you'll be lost. And so God has a general love that he applies to all of creation. However, God has a special love. He has a special affection for those who he predetermined to save. That is the love that is in view in chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians. That is God's great love. It is a special love for a specific target, his adopted kids, his rescue children, these people that he calls in 1 Peter a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And at this point, some might say, but I feel in my heart that God needs to love all equally. Well, he does. He has a general love for all of creation because every single one of you, every one of you, is made in his image and likeness, and he has a general love for his whole creation, even those that are outside of these walls this morning that are about ready to indulge in football and, and popcorn and peanuts for hours. He has a general love for them as well, but he has a special love. You know, if you are asking that question in your heart, and there's frustration and anger that you have toward God, and you think that you can set this demand on God, but God needs to, to love all equally, he needs to apply his special love to everybody equally, his special love. Really, I would ask you this. Do you love all equally? Did you buy Christmas gifts for everyone on earth? I don't believe that you did. My son had a 16th birthday this last week. I didn't see you at the house. Where was your gift? 
Your love has a specific target as well. And it's those whom you know, whom you are personal with, whom you are affectionate toward. You don't love all humanity. So how dare you, Mr. Hypocrite, Mrs. Hypocrite, how dare you demand that God love all humanity like you want him to when you don't do that? God does have a general love for all of humanity, which affords everyone, everyone, the sustaining of their breath. It affords everyone a heartbeat with a pulse regularly, which they didn't start and they won't end. It affords them continuity of thought in their mind because he could just as easily pull them off into Alzheimer's or any other depravity of man and sinfulness that comes from a fallen world. He sustains you. He gives you a life experience. He gives you a life experience in his image according to his likeness, which you take and mar and stain and abuse. You're in John chapter 6, and I'd have you look at John chapter 6, verse 36. And as we look at verse 36, I want us to consider the love of God toward Jesus and toward the special and specific group of people Jesus is speaking about here in the text. You see, here in the text, Jesus is with his disciples in Galilee. And being in Galilee, he's already fed these people, 5,000 people. He's fed them loaves and fishes. And this hungry crowd, they love that miracle. They love that sign that they saw from Jesus. And so they followed him around. They found him again. And they're hungry and they want bread. They want another sign. They want another miracle. He's He's got this crowd following him all around, and you'd think that Jesus' evangelistic skills would have overwhelmed these people at this point, and everyone would be believing in him, and that's just not the case. That's not what we see. They don't believe that he's the Son of God, but even seeing him, the crowd doesn't believe. You see that in verse 36, to which Jesus responds to their unbelief and his knowledge of their unbelief and that they will not believe. He says this in verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And while the people start to grumble at this declaration of Jesus, isn't he the son of Joseph and Mary? To which Jesus responds in verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, you see the text? John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Here is the great love of God, brothers and sisters, Here is the great love of God, that in the midst of a rebellious people, God draws the rebels out of their rebellion and gives them to the Son as a love gift. God has given people that he will draw to the Son as a love gift for the Son. Jesus says, the Father is the giver of people to me. The Father is the drawer of those people to me. The drawn will come, none will be lost, they will believe in him and be given eternal life, and Jesus himself will raise them up on the last day. This is the great love of God. 
He is gracing the dead to life, and in his rescue of a specific people, God is acquiring all the glory for himself and his son that he prepared in creation. How amazing is it to be part of this plan? To be part of a plan that was set, sealed, and secured in the great love of God from eternity past. Well, there's a lot of rejoicing in there for me. I hope that's the same for you. There's so much strength in that. There's so much strength in knowing that he's the one drawing and calling. There's so much weakness if I were to think that I chose Jesus. There's weakness there because you know what happens if I think that I chose Jesus? You know what happens? I could unchoose Jesus. God placed his favor onto me. Will he take it off? Do you see that there's much more confidence and certainty in just reading and understanding the text and thinking with my own mind that I did something to achieve salvation? I did nothing. He did everything that was his plan. Turn back to Ephesians 5, verse 23, 523, and let me help you understand God's love. If I said to you, I love you, and I bought tickets for you to go to Hawaii today and get out of the cold and dreary. But I never actually give you the tickets to Hawaii. Do I really love you? What do you expect of love? Is it sufficient for love to speak a gift and to even purchase a gift, but not to deliver a gift? Is that loving? This, for me, is the big problem with Arminianism which effectively says that God's special love is for everybody. God purchased salvation for everybody, and all will come to heaven in Jesus' name. But you have to choose to go and find your ticket to heaven because it's more important for God to play hide-and-seek with His love and not violate your free will than to actually deliver the ticket to heaven that He purchased in His Son's blood just in the event that you don't want to go there. Whereas Calvinism says that God has a specific love for a specific people that includes a specific ticket, ticket into eternal union with him and his son, which God personally, perfectly, unquestionably delivers to you so that his love is real and present and unmistakable while you let yet live in these sinful bodies. Do you need that kind of salvation? One that can't be stripped away by your thoughts or feelings? Do you need God to place something on you that no one, not height nor depth nor any other created thing, could separate you from? That's the salvation that I need. It's the one that God provides. It's the one that's supplied. I love the love that declares love and delivers love. I love that love. It declares love and delivers love. I love that. Do you love it? It's a lot of love. God's character is on display in his rich mercy and his great love. You add to these his surpassingly rich grace and his kindness from verse 7, and you find that God in love is saving a group of people for his son. Paul knows this very well. He speaks of it here in Ephesians 5, 23 and verse 25. The marriage relationship is a window or picture into God's divine plan. In this, Jesus relates to the church in the same way that husbands relate to their wives. That is an incredible image. What an incredible picture. You get to live a long life loving a spouse 
And that picture of your love to your spouse is a metaphor of an eternal relationship that Jesus has with the redeemed, with those whom he's called and chosen. Chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We, brothers and sisters, are the church, and Jesus loves us like a husband has love for his wife. Where does the church come from for Jesus to love? We saw in the text, the Father draws the members of the church to Jesus. John 6, 44, God saves. He actually saves. He doesn't purchase a general salvation that you ascribe to when you come to certain knowledge, like some Gnostic. He actually saves. That cross, Christ purchased a salvation. There are names that he took to that cross. And that salvation is applied to us. And what an incredible picture and metaphor. This then takes us to the second point in our note, the second prized image of God, the performance of God. The second prized image of God that we see in the text is the performance of God. What, is, what does God drawing men to the Son look like? How does God actually save? What's the process? Well, baby Jessica was saved by a man who exhausted himself. Let's talk about this for a second. Baby Jessica was saved by a man who exhausted himself. He packed himself into an extremely uncomfortable place. A shaft driven next to a well. It was tight, dark, uncomfortable, wet, dirty. This man labored long to get down 22 feet to get next to her, right up alongside of her, and still have access to her. However, he was bound, he had access to her, and he used his strength and his will to arrive there. And arriving at her, in her helplessness, did he say to her, okay, baby Jessica, we've made an escape for you, and now you just need to climb on out of this shaft. That'd be ridiculous. Of course he didn't say that to her. What did he say? What did he do? You know, this man had labored so long for her rescue that her salvation became very personal to him. So he carefully extracted her helpless body and he carried her out in the palms of his hands, raising her up to life and to safety in his own strength. Is that a helpful image for us this morning? Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see how it parallels the performance of God's grace in our rescue and in our salvation. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you see the glory in this image? There's so much glory to God in this image. Do you see the ability and the care and the strength of the rescuer? Paul doesn't want you to miss the size and scope of the rescue, which is why momentarily he sends your mind back to the reality of your own state. In verse 5, he reminds us, we were dead. We were, you need to be pulled into this because your, your mind thinks that you're doing a whole bunch of good stuff here on earth. You're not good. You were born dead. And we're reminded of this again in the, in the picture that he's painting of, of all of God's glory and rescue. He goes back to paint this picture. You were dead. Think on this for a second. Why, Paul, why do you take the time and effort to restate our dead condition? You slapped us around last week in verses 1 through 3. Why do we want to do that again? Perhaps Paul heard someone say at some point in time, I chose Jesus. Perhaps he heard someone say, 
I accepted Jesus into my heart. Perhaps he heard someone say, I flung the doors of my heart open and I allowed Jesus to fly right in. And here Paul is laboring again to make it explicitly clear with certainty, finality, even forcefully, that our spiritual gas tank was empty. That spiritually speaking, there was a zero. There was nothing. Lifeless. Helplessness. And in our total state of depravity, our spiritual helplessness, we get the resounding call of verse 5, that God made us alive together with Christ to which we say, glory. To which we say, hallelujah, rescue, salvation. This is the greatest rescue known to all of mankind. This is the height of grace and the greatest of all salvation stories ever told on earth. God is found gracing the dead alive. Like a professional photographer, Paul here captures the image of greatest significance the moment of greatest contrast, of greatest concentration of emotion and power. And he captures this moment in style, using made-up words. That's what you should do, make up words. And he does, he makes up words here to accommodate and afford the height of glory in this celebration. He says that the verb here is a compound verb for that, that is Paul's own creation. He slaps a prefix, the prefix soon, S-U-N, which means with, onto the verb, which means to make alive. He wants to draw distinct attention to the life that God has given to us, which is with Christ, in Christ, bound together with and in Christ. The verb tells us that God has bound and wound and twisted up our lives together with Christ in ways that are inseparable. Our life is only in Christ. Earlier this week, I was on a chairlift with my daughter, Finney, heading up to do some snowboarding at Mount Spokane. And hanging there 30 feet over the ground, you can't help but notice the strength of the heavy steel cable that is a bunch of smaller lines bound and wound and twisted all together that allow the lift to hold and transport an incredible amount of weight in those chairs and all those people. And it's amazing to think that we are bound and wound and twisted together in Christ in greater spiritual strength than those cables. And the thought goes that if we can trust the strength of the cable with our physical life, how much more shall we be able to trust God twisting us and bounding us and winding us together with Christ? How important is that for God to do? It was important for Paul to share. He slaps that prefix on word after word. Consider how bound and, and twisted together we are. Verse 6, Paul says that God raised us with and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. There's that word. First, I would have you note that word, with. Look at with, underline it, circle it, highlight it. It's important. This, again, is Paul's making up words which speak to our union with Christ. Union with Christ, so critical. He's added the same prefix soon on these verbs. Second, I would have you note that both of these verbs, all of these verbs that appear, uh, both of these verbs here, raised and seated, they appear in chapter 1, verse 20, in Paul's prayer about the power of God in Christ that he wants God to make known to us. And it's hard to understate the significance of the repetition of these verbs from verse 20 of chapter 1 to verse 6 of chapter 2. 
I would suggest that you underline and circle them and even draw lines from chapter 1, verse 20 over to chapter 2, verse 6. They're the same words. They're the same verbs done in God's power to Christ raised physically, done in God's grace to us raised spiritually. And third, these verbs, all three of them, made alive, raised, and seated, they're all in the aorist tense. And what does it mean? What's the significance of being in the aorist tense? These are actions completed in the past. And it means that Paul's perspective is God's perspective, which is this, that we, spiritually speaking, traveled with Christ to heaven when he did. When he was raised physically, we traveled with Christ. We traveled up into heaven and were seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. The tense of the verbs captures the image of the height of our victory and triumph achieved in God's grace and salvation, seating us at God's own right hand. More helpless were we than baby Jessica, and God picked us up from our spiritual death and raised us to the heights of spiritual life in Christ and gave us prominence, prominence in heaven. This is the matchless performance of God. This is an MVP performance of God because these three verbs are compound verbs, two words shoved together. You could call this God's triple-double performance. It's an MVP performance. It's such a powerful performance by God because it is so monergistic, which is to say that this is one-sided. This is all God, all the time. It's all Him. It's so monergistic, it's so one-sided that Paul interrupts his thought to make a parenthetical comment about how one-sided it actually is. This performance needs to be qualified. Paul interrupts his own thoughts and gives us what he means when he says, verse 6, by grace you have been saved. God's MVP, triple-double performance, is given a one-word summary. What you just witnessed, what you just saw, is grace. Your rescue is grace. Your salvation is grace. God's performance is grace. And what is grace? What is grace? We saw mercy earlier. They work together, but they're not the same. What is grace? Grace is undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. He puts his favor onto you. Grace is radical. Grace is radical. Grace is Joe Biden gracing those protesters charged with their crimes this last week to be those who sit at the balcony at the inauguration. That's grace. It would go further because Joe wouldn't just do that. His grace is much bigger than just inviting you to the inauguration. There would be a dinner in a totally COVID-free environment. Grace is favor lavished on enemies. God placed it on Abraham, Paul, Matthew, Peter, you, 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 all of us. Everyone is dead in their transgressions and sins, unable and unwilling to do what is right, but God. He came upon us in great grace and in great power. And I really think that you need to think about this. When was God under any obligation to offer grace to his creation? When was God under obligation to offer grace to his creation? Never. That's just the point. Never. He graced all of creation in creation. You're here. He made you. 
You're alive. That's grace. What claim does the creation have to demand more grace from God? It has none. He gave you life. That's grace enough. And it should be the case that now, creature, do your job. Obey and bring glory to the God that made you. Let me ask you this, parents. Do you allow your kids to determine when they get grace and mercy versus justice in your house? I would hope not. Do you really want the inmates running the asylum? Of course not. Parents, you need to use their sinfulness to wisely teach them about the character of God. You teach them about wrath and justice, and in so doing, you give them a basis to rightly understand grace and mercy. And then they will know that salvation is rescue from impending wrath. More than rescue from wrath, God's grace and salvation are union with him in his son, Jesus Christ. Union with him. Verses 5 and 6 and 7 all qualify our salvation as union with Christ. There's no basis on which salvation can be given other than union with Christ. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which men must be saved. The salvation that we have is highly exclusive. It is a highly exclusive salvation. Don't ever forget that in this world that is so wicked. There are voices that would want, want to tell you otherwise and want to co-opt the gospel and change the salvation that Paul so clearly speaks about here in Ephesians chapter 2. Like last week, like last week, when Pope Francis posted a video that offered an incredibly inclusive understanding of salvation. This man is the head of the Roman Catholic system. And he said this, let me, let me give him his quote. He said in his video, when we pray to God following Jesus, we come together as brothers and sisters with those who pray according to other cultures, other traditions, and other beliefs. That's called ecumenism. That's called inclusivism. The video paraded images of Catholics and Muslims and Jews individually praying, and it had the express intent of declaring to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message about fraternity in one true God. Fraternity in one true God, to whom we all will pray, and so let's all be friends and let's all get along because it's all the same God that we're all praying to. This man is the leader of one billion people on the face of this earth, 15% of the world's population, and he is helping people to entirely miss the exclusive union with Christ given by God in salvation. The Pope is a great deceiver and a tool of Satan, and he's leading people to hell. The performance of grace is marvelous because God's triple action to make us alive in Christ, twisting us perfectly together with Christ, that we've already been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And note this, God doesn't ask permission when he gives grace and makes you alive. Do you remember that about yourself? Did he show up on your porch and ask you for permission? He didn't. It's the right and best thing that God could do is to jump into a life, jump into a heart, wash and cleanse and give the power of his Holy Spirit. He's been doing this since creation. He's been especially doing it over the last 2,000 years, which takes us to our third and final prized image of God. Our third and final prized image of God is the parade of God. Awesome acts of rescue, service, and salvation deserve a hero's parade. 
Spokane, we have in May the Lilac Festival and the Armed Forces Torchlight Parade groups that march through the streets of downtown Spokane, celebrating our heroes, their service, and their sacrifice. I'll never forget the heroes welcome that welcomed my ship, the USS Antietam, back to our home port in San Diego on January 19th, 2002, just about 19 years ago come Tuesday. We were deployed over the events of September 11th, and it was at that time that our nation's pride and its veterans, you remember this, don't you? I mean, you remember the season of life, right? When our nation's pride and its veterans, its police force and its firemen had been stirred up because of the sacrifices of brave men at 9-11's events. I'll never forget the banners and the flags and the cheering and the joy and the excitement of the crowd as our ship pulled along the pier that morning. It was the best day of my life. Well, sure, because the celebration was memorable. It was also the day that I asked Angela to marry me, and she said yes, probably because of the pressure of the crowd at the pier, but <laughs> either way, we were married a week later. The celebration continued, and celebration needs to happen. Celebration of heroes, celebration of rescue, celebration of salvation, spiritual celebration, a grace parade, a vast heavenly salvation spectacle. These are the thoughts on Paul's mind as he writes Ephesians 2.7. God has a parade going on right now. Do you know about the parade? Read with me verses 7 of, of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Do you see Paul's parade image? It begins with a purpose clause. The purpose clause, so that all of this other stuff, all this salvation, all the glory of salvation, but God, rescue you. All of this has happened for a reason. What's the reason? Take us to the main verb. What's the main verb? He might show, which means to manifest or display. And this verb then begs for an object. What's the object that's going to be showed? What does God desire to display? The surpassing riches of his grace. Daily, brothers and sisters, there is a heavenly spectacle honoring God's grace that is happening. This is a grace parade, and grace has a vehicle. Grace has a float parade, if you will. Who's transporting the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son? It is impossible to see the grace of God paraded without seeing Jesus Christ, His Son. God's grace is exclusively bound to the person and work of His Son. And finally, this parade has a temporal component, a time component. How does this parade relate to time? Most parades set a date, and they require eight hours from setup to takedown to accomplish. Is God's parade an eight-hour glory festival? How much parade time did God plan for the display and showcase of His saving grace in Jesus Christ lavished on the undeserved? How much time did He prepare for this? Text, the text in verse 7 says, In the ages to come. And I really want you to have a, an image of what Paul is capturing here. So let me explain this. Paul wrote this letter in A.D. 62. That's 1,960 years ago. The ages to come are all the years that have happened from then to now. 1,960 years plus all the years that are out in front of us off into eternity. That's a long time. And what is the object being displayed? It is the rescue, the salvation, God's grace and salvation given in Christ. And so how much parading has been going on? What kind of grace and glory spectacle has God created over the last 1,960 years from when Paul wrote this letter? How much salvation has been happening? 31% of the world right now claim to be Christians. Is everybody Christians of the 31%? No, half of them are Roman Catholics. So we have to eliminate the false faith. So you pull out the false faith, and I'm much more comfortable out of the 31% pulling that down to 
4%. That's, that's my conservative estimate. You can pick your own. But let's just go with my number, 4%. Do you realize that if 4% of the world is currently saved at this time, quick math would tell you that God needed to save roughly 8,200 people per day for the last 100 years to make that happen. Did you get that? 8,200 people per day for 100 years. How is that for a glory spectacle and a heavenly parade? This heavenly, the heavenly realm right now is a front row seat to such incredible glory. Are you aware of God's daily spiritual parade? Do you delight in knowing that today God will be gracing thousands of the dead to life? This is the third of three prized images of God's salvation, of his grace salvation. In communicating man's view of salvation, Paul has taken us here to the height of grace and captured three prized images that must inform our understanding of God's grace. Treasure these images. The image of the person of grace, the image of the performance of grace, the image of the parade of grace, which is going on now and will never cease. And perhaps, brothers and sisters, you're wondering, how do I respond to such glory? What must my heart do with such truth? Let me wrap up with this thought. Number one, store these up in your heart. Hold on to these treasures. Hold on to these images. And live with confidence and certainty that you are truly a redeemed, adopted child of God, not of your own strength, but of his. Graced with resurrection from spiritual death. Don't ever cave into the notion that as one extremely popular pastor has said, quote, even Jesus can't override your unbelief. Don't fall into that trap. How wicked a statement and comment did he make? How wrong is that? Where was that comment of that pastor in the text that we read today? That is exactly what the Father and the Son need to do is rescue helpless sinners like us. Praise God that he overwhelmed and consumed with rich mercy and great love our dead bodies, our dead spirits, gracing us to newness of life. Second, ascribe all praise and glory to the Father and the Son. With thankfulness in your hearts, give appreciation, affection, and adoration to God. Your heart should burst with the love of God, which results in obedience. If you heard this message today at all, it should affect you in your love of God and your obedience toward him. His salvation was not cheap, and it came to you in power and surpassingly rich grace. Respond in love to your creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, remember the whole transaction. Be daily equipped in your heart to sing with the whole of your heart and your mind and your soul. These words, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life, it led me to the grave. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Father in heaven, cause your word to define grace on your terms for us. Cause us to understand the person of grace, this incredible performance of grace, and how you are daily saving in a cosmic parade lives who you have set from eternity past. What a marvelous plan and why did you draw us into it? We're so blessed to have you, to have this salvation and the certainty that goes with it and to share it with these brothers and sisters. Let us sing together now your praise in Christ's name. Amen.